great to be with you and have the privilege of preaching today on Pentecost Sunday, one of those uh, special celebrations that we have in the church, but kind of sometimes seems a little bit, where does this fit? We have Christmas, we have Christmas trees, we have uh, all the presents, we have uh, days off, particularly where we um, are able to, to, to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Easter, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, a key wonderful time. And then 50 days later, Pentecost. We do get a bank holiday, I suppose, but what's its meaning? What's its point? Pentecost uh, was one of those Jewish festivals that was really central in, uh, in the life of the Jewish community, in the, uh, the, the founding place of their nation. It came 50 days after Passover, hence the name Pentecost. And it was originally located at the temple. It was when people in the wheat harvest would bring in their first fruits of the wheat harvest in order to bring them as an offering and to give thanks to God. Obviously, we know the story in Acts in chapter 2 when the disciples were in the upper room praying. Jesus had said, wait, and you'll be clothed with power from on high. And that very morning... On the Feast of Pentecost, that celebration, the Holy Spirit fell and they were filled. And there's a sound of of rushing wind and tongues of flame. And they spilled out on the street. Pentecost. The giving of the Spirit. As I was thinking about the roots in the Old Testament, there was something about the link to Passover, to Easter of redemption, of the dependence upon God in Passover, of rescuing from slavery, of being brought out of Egypt, of recognizing the saving purposes of God. And and clearly, how much more is that true at Easter in the death and resurrection of Jesus? But also, 50 days later, in this celebration of the first fruits of the harvest, of recognizing still not only dependency on God and for God, for provision of food and harvest, but absolutely in Pentecost, the recognition and the the trust in God, the dependence upon God in the giving of his spirit for the harvest now that is far more than simply fields and wheat. The harvest of love, the harvest of people to come and believe and trust and enter into new life. So, Father, as I preach and share a few reflections from uh, 1 Corinthians, the experience of our sisters and brothers in Corinth, would you help us this morning, this day, this time, to encounter you afresh, to be filled with your spirit, and to walk with you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Pentecost, what's it all about? The reading wasn't from Acts this morning, but it's from, uh, if you want to look at that, Acts chapter 2, the story of of what happened on that first Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out upon all people, men and women, old and young. But the Spirit in Corinth is so extensive. We've heard in in weeks gone by in all sorts of ways of what it looked like for the church in Corinth to be described as messy, with Jesus at the heart, but dealing with the complications and the complexities of a growing fellowship, of a, a fellowship who were wanting to follow Jesus, but struggling to work out how they do that in their life together as they met from all sorts of different 
places in life, but also what it looked like in their day-to-day, in their normal, in being a worshipping community in a culture that wasn't founded in faith or in in its understanding of, of Jesus and the gospel. Well, right on Pentecost, I want to reiterate and and underline really clearly that in Paul's teaching in Corinth, and actually in in all of his epistles and letters, the Holy Spirit is given principally for the task of mission. That the Holy Spirit compels mission in the church, in us, in our people. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Luke records these words that Jesus said, stay in Jerusalem and you'll be clothed in power and then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That our message is still his message, that our task is still his task. And Phil read for us from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When Paul came into Corinth and and started to preach and started to share the gospel, it was hearing the gospel in the power of the Spirit, that the Spirit was at work as he unfolded the scriptures and taught about Jesus, the Messiah, about the kingdom of God, that the Holy Spirit was clearly at work, clearly involved. It wasn't just of talk or of words, but of power. To bring people to the Saviour, Jesus. To cause them to bow the knee and trust him as Lord. That reminder for us as a fellowship, and and if you're tuning in and wondering what we're about at Chipping Camden Baptist Church, we're about Jesus. We're about making disciples, of calling people to make that choice yourself, to say, will you trust in Jesus who loves you, who died for you, who sends the Spirit, who says the life that you've experienced today can be totally transformed as we turn to him and say, yes, Jesus, I turn to you. Fill me like that very first Pentecost with your Spirit that I may now be born again. It's still about mission. If you're not convinced or not sure about the, the kind of, well, is this really true? Just think of a lesson from church history. In the first 100 years since Jesus rose from the tomb, the tomb was empty, that he convinced those doubting, skeptical followers that he was alive, that he conquered death. In 100 years, this gospel, this good news, had been carried as far west as to Spain and India to the east and Ethiopia to the south. In the next couple of hundred years, the gospel spread to the northern reaches of Europe, to this cold and far-flung outpost in Great Britain. Down through the centuries, this fire, this imperative of the spread of Jesus' name has burned brightly. That people have become followers from all sorts of life, ways of life and backgrounds and races and cultures that their lives, individuals, have been changed. You see, when people encounter Jesus and are filled by his spirit, the Holy Spirit, we come to know peace that passes all understanding. But not just peace, courage, fortitude, a new calling and mission. That the followers of Jesus, right from the early days, and still it with us and in many parts of the world, Followers of Jesus Christ demonstrate enormous courage, an unwillingness 
to deny Jesus, even if it costs and may cost ultimately. See, the Roman authorities, as they were beginning to experience in Paul's time and, and in cultures countless sins, authorities tried to stamp out this proclamation of Jesus by persecution and getting people to recant, to turn back, to deny Jesus Christ. But it backfires. People were torn apart by wild animals in Roman arenas for entertainment for the emperor and his entourage. They faced death, yet did so courageously. And in doing so, others attracted. Why is it that these ordinary, insignificant people from just like our street know something deep within? And it's to do with Pentecost, to do with the Spirit. His message is our message that this is good news, mission. The Holy Spirit compels us. And he compels us in life too, not just mission. We're told in a number of places in Paul's letters, and as we have heard in, in Corinth writ large for us, that the Holy Spirit indwells us, that the Holy Spirit comes and makes his home, his dwelling, in us. That to live and to be a follower of Jesus needs the Holy Spirit. We ask him again and again, come and fill me, not because he's gone, but to say we need you yet more. That his power, the Holy Spirit's power of God is convincing us of the truth of the gospel and of a watching world. And that the power of God in the Spirit is this new creation for those who come to faith. We are born again. We are new creations. Chapter two, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 reminds us that we are born again, that we are new creations. We have come alive. The Holy Spirit empowers us in order to live a life that pleases God. That as we confess him as Lord, we need to depend upon the Holy Spirit to choose, to keep choosing the ways of Jesus and following the Holy Spirit. This was so clear in Corinth, in this messy context that they are in, in this messy church, that following Jesus isn't always straightforward. That we see in chapters 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7 that Paul is having to say to them, turn away from your sinful ways, from, from fleshy desires of things that you've learned because of your culture. Turn away from them. They aren't what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Follow the paths of the Spirit. Chapter 6 verses 18 to 20. Reminders. Corinth is complicated. There are deep divisions in the fellowship. There are lawsuits. One believer is taking legal action against the other. And Paul says it's not just something you need to work out and come to some sort of reconciliation, but actually this is a deeply spiritual matter because it is about the Holy Spirit within the fellowship of believers. Corinth is complicated because there was immorality in the choices that were being made in that church Fellowship. There were relationship breakdowns and, and moral boundaries were being transcended. And Paul said, this is a matter of the gospel. This is a matter of Christian life. This is a matter of the spirit. And the believers in Corinth, where it was complicated, were compromising their walk with Jesus in the choices that they were making or being faced with 
living in a society that didn't follow Jesus, that had other practices and ways of doing things that brought the conflict of what it means to say true, stay true to Jesus with what does it look like when everyone else carries on regardless. That's why this letter is so profound. And it reflects our reality too. That our culture is so implicitly and explicitly calling us to perhaps skew our choices, to compromise. And yet part of the answer is to say, Lord, fill me with your spirit that I may walk in step with you in pleasing you. You see, Paul would point to the Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, he says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. He's really practical. But undoubtedly, the gospel is powerful, that it transforms and it changes. That in the morning, perhaps say, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. Help me to hear you. May my conscience be alive and alert. And at the end of the day, as you reflect back, thinking, where did I see the Holy Spirit? Where was the still small voice of the Spirit at work in my life? Where did I ignore him? Where did I succeed? Then in that daily devotion, that daily reflection, we begin to have our lives realigned and our spiritual antenna tuned. You see, living in the Spirit, what Pentecost is all about today, the reminder, this key feature, means that all of our life will be affected in real, concrete, down-to-earth ways. The Spirit isn't just about Sunday, but every day. My grandmother used to have a phrase, she said... Uh, those religious sorts are so heavenly-minded, they're of no earthly use. That that's not what it is to be alive in the Spirit. Of course it would bring a heavenly-mindedness, but absolutely it will be of every earthly use in every situation. Galatians 5 says, this is what it looks like, the fruit of the Spirit as the testament to the effect and the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. In Corinth, chapter 13, it would Paul describes it in terms of love, the character and the ability and the capacity and the way that love gets worked out in our work relations and family life and so forth with our neighbours. Spiritual life, spirit-filled life, has all the hallmarks of love. When I was a teenager, I, I had the uh, privilege one day of spending time with my grandfather. He was a bit of a Sheffield um, dignitary, he was, did all sorts of things. And I discovered on this day when I was about 15 that he was also really involved in um, the assay office in Sheffield. It was one of a few assay offices, not an essay office, they didn't write essays, but assay. If you have a piece of jewellery that's um, supposedly valuable, if you turn it over and look, you'll find a small mark somewhere, a hallmark, that has been stamped at an assay office. I remember going in and, and seeing um, 
these precious metals, gold and silver and so forth. And they had these people who would scrape a tiny sample off. They would analyze it in some uh, wonderful machine and it would come back and tell you how pure it was and, and uh, of what the metal content was versus the kind of material that would bulk it out. And as such, they would, they would hallmark it. They would stamp it with this sign for all to see that this was of particularly high quality or actually this was a fake. I found it fascinating. But for Paul, the the fruit of the Spirit, and indeed in count 1 Corinthians 13, the hallmarks of spiritual life are the quantity and quality, demonstrably, of love that is patient and kind and so forth. We need the Spirit. The Spirit brings community. Individually, we're told the Holy Spirit indwells us. But we're told, too, that as a church family, the Spirit indwells us. And we are called together. Chapter 12, reminding them that we don't just get spiritual gifts from the Holy Spirit for our own benefit and to feel puffed up, but for the benefit of one another. That we are new people, directed by the Holy Spirit, endued, gifted with spiritual gifts for the benefit of one another, believers and the not yet. They are for mutual sharing that we serve together. And finally, the Holy Spirit helps us in our worship. Of course, that's we individuals, you and I, we looked at that a few weeks ago, but us. At the start, I reflected back about how Pentecost originally was in the temple and in bringing a wheat offering. And in Acts 2 on Pentecost, though in Jerusalem, they weren't in the temple. They were on the street in the place where people lived. They were worshipping, praying in the upper room. And the Holy Spirit came. That the Spirit is poured out upon all people not located in a particular place or building or holy location, but the Spirit is poured out upon all flesh, men, women, young and old, whatever racial background we happen to have been born into. Paul wonderfully and profoundly says this, the Holy Spirit indwells us that we now are the temple of God. We now are the place and the build, the, the, the location where the Spirit of God resides, that He is building us together into, an, into a living temple in which He resides. In chapters 12 and 14, we're told what it looks like when we gather and some of the problems that they were having in, in who should speak and not and, and how to, to construct their worship services. But essentially, Paul is celebrating that the Spirit is within them and bringing them to life and they're coming in their faith and love and passion for Jesus together. We're praying at this time in all sorts of ways in these challenging days, but also pray for us, for you and I, that we be filled with the Spirit afresh. That as we are being built, 
remotely on a flat screen at the moment that isn't, isn't the same as being together. We are still indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. But also really mindful that we're, we're making friends and making connections with people who we haven't necessarily met. But I can assure you the Lord is at work in your life. The Lord is building So in our mission, in our life, in the choices that we're making, in our community living, and in our worship, I'm so thankful that the Holy Spirit has been poured out. And we still pray more, Lord. Fill us yet more, for he is building us. This spiritual life that that we're talking about is about what we do together and the kind of the more formal or the more kind of obvious aspects of what it means to believe, but also The spiritual life, the spiritful life, is about the quantity and quality of our love, of our relating to the other, of our welcome, our hospitality, our witness. Just to close, I came across a story. Have a think about it. It's a kind of reimagined parable, perhaps. I was walking one afternoon and I passed a corner where a man was doing something that fascinated me and I stopped my walk and watched him. He had this pile of bricks and the thing that he was doing was measuring each brick and how long it was and how wide it was and how deep it was. He'd throw a bunch of really quality, good-looking bricks out. He said, I've got to get them all exactly the same. I said, why? He said, I'm building a church and I want it to stand. See, there are, there are people who think that the way to really have a, a church is to get people that are from the same economic and social and educational background, that they'll all be together and all look very similar. And he started to stack those bricks just as they were all alike. Anyway, I went on and came back later in the afternoon and there was just a pile of bricks fallen down. I went around the corner and I saw a man with a pile of rocks. You've never seen such a mess in all your life. No two rock was alike. Round ones, dark ones, small ones, big ones, angular ones, little ones. I said, what in the world are you doing? He said, I'm building a church. I said, you're nuts. The guy down there had them all alike and couldn't make them stand. He said, this will stand. This will stand. It won't. You couldn't see it. Yes, it will. You can't get it to stand. The fellow down there had them all the same, all as if it should. He said, these will stand. And he went over to a wooden tray, took something like a, a, a plasterer's uh, hoe and and began to stir something back and forth and it looked like a lot like cement to me but that's not what he called it he put healthy doses of that between the stones and I went back 34 years later and it was still there it was the stuff in between it looked a lot like cement it's not what he called it you know you know what he called it 